2: I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode of Chatter for August 14th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast hosted by David Priest and Shane Harris that features in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled Journalism as Fodder for Fiction with Mary Louise Kelly. In the episode, Harris sat down with Kelly to discuss how she got her start in journalism, her travels around the world, and how journalism influences her fiction writing. This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, Mary Louise Kelly on how journalism is fodder for
1: fiction. I remember sitting in Pakistan at the headquarters of ISI, their intelligence service, and one of them kept blowing the most beautiful smoke rings that were floating up to the ceiling and then a peacock walked by the window outside and I just thought, God, I should do something with this. Like, what do you do with this? So you write it in your notebook and figure, maybe one day. I had this moment uh, in Baghdad, actually, where I just, I hit the wall and thinking, I love my job, but right now this is not working. And on the plane home from that, I started writing what became my first novel. I spent a lot of time with anonymous sources trying to make it as perfect as I was capable of making it. And then it's really hard because you're so invested at the end when your editor comes back to you and says, this whole section didn't work, throw it out. I'm like, but I sweated blood over that section.
2: Mary Louise Kelly, welcome to Chatter.
1: Thank you. So happy to be here, I'm finally. God.
2: Yes, I know. We've been trying to work this out. We have. You've been writing novels, and you've been broadcasting on this small thing called National Public Radio, some people may have
1: heard of. <laughs> <laughs> this little outlet, yeah, yeah, for yeah. From here. exactly,
2: yeah. exactly. Local radio, as mm-hmm. there's a pledge drive going on, we do. We're
1: very proud of our local radio stations all over the country,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Well, so you have been back in the studio recording now for how long? For a all month, considered. Okay,
1: a month. We um, were very careful, and the last i know and from the before times april of 2020 mm-hmm. shut down our beautiful soundproofed makes this job much easier studios gorgeous and all, studio. yeah, gorgeous yeah. studios um and all started broadcasting from our basements and guest rooms and closets and all the rest of it. Um, my dog has made multiple appearances on NPR. My kids have made even more. The vacuum cleaner on the rare occasions it gets run. Producers are like, can we turn that down? I'm like, nope. If somebody's vacuuming, I'm not getting it now. Yeah, way. no, there's <laughs> no way. Going like, we're doing this now. It's
2: live. It's happening.
1: Um, but so finally, uh, you know, with everybody – vaccinated and rapid tested and yeah. all the rest yeah. uh, we yeah. have been back in the studios um, since June yeah and it's been fantastic it's makes such a difference to yeah. be able to see somebody when you talk to them like my co-host and to have engineers and producers around so that's been good
2: did you ever hear from listeners saying that they liked the dogs barking and yeah. the kids in the background
1: it's funny I mean my ears professionally tuned to what it's supposed to sound like. And I feel like you could really hear a difference when we were all at home. Um, But most people can't. The mics are decent. The connections are good. Technology is amazing. And um, yeah, there were some dogs that were developing real followings. (laughs) Scott Horsley, our chief economics (laughs) correspondence dog, was particularly eager to engage in conversation. And he would, you know... There'd be something, stock market crash, and the dog would be going nuts, and you just acknowledge it yeah. and, you know, move on. But, it yeah.
2: Probably had a way of, of humanizing people, too. Because, exactly. like, otherwise you're just sort of this disembodied voice that's out there of authority, and now it makes you more familiar to people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. That's yeah. nice. Um, so we'll talk about your career in journalism. We will talk about your career as a novelist, which we're very excited about since you have been writing spy novels and Mm -hmm. we love to talk about that on Chatter. Um, But first let's talk about you. So tell us where you were born and where did you grow up?
1: I was born in an army field hospital in Augsburg, Germany. My father was drafted during Vietnam and was lucky enough not to get sent to Vietnam but to go do army intelligence in Bavaria. Uh, and his new bride, my mother, followed him, and then I came along a year or two later. Um, we moved back to the states when I was three or four. Mm-hmm. I grew up mostly in Atlanta. We're so in Atlanta. I'm, I'm a Georgia girl, right yeah. middle of town. My parents, you know, are in Buckhead. Like uh, really, like yeah, right there in the city.
2: I grew up in East Cobb. Well, h- high school in East Cobb County in Marietta.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, so, so I was I in Atlanta Vining's for oh, okay, for, for a long time during school. And That's then, a great part of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, So that's where I grew up, and that was my first job, like right out of college, was going home and being an intern for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my hometown paper. And as you know, you get to—for me, it was like seeing a totally different city than the one that in my tunnel vision, going to high school, um, focusing on sports and college applications and Mm -hmm. all that, you know, to cover it as a reporter— and go to neighborhoods I'd never even heard of, much less visited, was a totally different experience. What was your first beat? So I was an intern, uh, and I covered things like sinkholes erupting in parking lots. Then I was assigned to the political desk when I, political desk when I got a full-time gig. And I did uh, like the night cop shift for Cub County. Okay. Out of the, we had a bureau just off the Marietta Town Square. Oh yeah. And it was a lot of monitoring the late night, yeah. and, you know, what was going on on the scanner, and getting called out to somebody's pet hyena had escaped and police were giving I mean, it was It was some good stories. And then I got my really big break and was made the political correspondent for DeKalb County. So covering okay. the DeKalb County commission out of yeah. our Decatur Bureau mm-hmm. um, and covering what was going on pertinent to DeKalb County out of the Georgia State House. So mm-hmm. at the Capitol, following people around, I wrote a weekly column about that and chased down things like the garbage contracts for um, DeKalb County Commission. I made every mistake I think it is possible to—well, I say every mistake. I've continued to find new ways to <laughs> mess things up. But made so many mistakes that I was so fortunate to have good editors to like save me for myself, walk me back from, help me figure out how you do this. Yeah. And, um, and it was just great experience writing on everything under the sun. And politics in Georgia gets crazy, oh, yeah. uh, uh, which we have not lost sight of today in 2022, and it was crazy then in the 90s. Um, so it was a great experience, but I knew I wanted to do foreign policy, mm-hmm. international news, and that the Journal-Constitution probably wasn't going to be the best launch pad for that. So I was, as I was doing that, already eyeing... Grad school, what mm, comes next.
2: I see. And this is a time also in Atlanta, maybe people don't appreciate it, the 90s are this incredibly dynamic, fast time. I mean, you know, the Olympics were coming. Yeah. The, city, the suburbs were expanding. I mean, the city was really, I mean, becoming this kind of like, you know, capital of the South, which a lot of people in the South, you know, don't yep. like that it was becoming yep. that. So that must have been just an exciting time too. And Atlanta is kind of like looking out more to the world. So there totally. is an international kind of flavor that's coming big companies are there you know it's it's a transportation hub
1: and i think that was you know atlanta had always been international because of it as a corporate hub it was already headquarters of coke it was already headquarters of delta Mm -hmm. um but it was like the rest of the country and the world noticed with the olympics coming to town and all of the building that transformed to this day Downtown Atlanta. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, by the time I covered the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996, I was working for the BBC. Wow. Um, So how did
2: did you go from the AJC to the BBC?
1: I did by way of—I did um, a postgraduate degree in England at Cambridge and in European politics and history. I'm
2: sensing biographical themes that come back later in a Uh certain novel, which we'll we'll get to. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, And I— Toyed with applying to law school and toyed Uh with being a management consultant and toyed with continuing in academia and getting a Ph.D. and going being some very lofty professor thinking deep thoughts. Um, And in job interview after job interview, I kept thinking, yeah, I I could I could do that and I'd be better paid. And there are advantages to some of those things, you know, particularly management consulting. I'd be better paid. But I would walk into a newsroom and just feel alive, Mm -hmm. just feel I would pay you to get to do mm-hmm. this. I remember walking into an interview at the BBC um, long before they actually hired me. I did not get this job, but I um, they kept me waiting for two hours because some big story was breaking, and you know the newsroom was going crazy, and interns are running around screaming, and the pro, you know printers are like churning out smoke, and everybody's banging in and out of studios. And I just sat there thinking, "Yeah, this is where I
2: want to yeah. be." Yeah, yeah.
1: So I talked my way into a. Um, a one-week internship. The uh, this cute boy who I was at grad school with, whose uh, dad ran BBC Scotland, um, offered to hook me up with a one-week unpaid. I won't even call it an internship. One week. One week. You know, but following them around while well, seeing how they covered politics, because I didn't know anything about broadcasting either. How does that work? Uh-huh. Would I like this? Um, so that was in Glasgow. And I met somebody there who was on assignment from BBC Westminster covering Mm. Parliament. And I said, can I come do the same thing there? Can I follow you around for one week? Unpaid, absolutely useless. I was, I mean. Um, But it was very useful to me because I looked at broadcasting and thought, I could do this. I like this. And with those two on my resume, these two very impressive internships, um, I started applying around to BBC Jobs, which I was manifestly unqualified for, and I further didn't have a work permit to work in the UK. Um, But as luck would have it, they were opening a Boston bureau, uh, partnered with WGBH, uh, to launch a program called The World, which is a great international news Mm, program, which exists to this day, and they were hiring. So I applied, and some crazy person gave it to me, <laughs> and um, that was that was the beginning of broadcasting for wow, me. Wow. Yeah. Were you
2: sort of like doing general assignment work? Or?
1: I was hired as a producer to mm-hmm. help get the world on the air every day, but it was great because it was a startup, and the big premise was we are going to cover the whole world, and we're going to do it with local reporters. We're not going to follow the traditional model that NPR and the Washington Post and every other major American news organization does of sending our American people overseas, we're going to hire somebody locally to tell us their story of their country and their patch as they see it. And to do that, we had to train people. So it was a lot of identifying a promising newspaper reporter Mm. in Phnom Penh to take one that I took on and then sending a producer there to train them. This is, here's radio gear, here's broadcasting gear, here's how it works, Teach you how to file for us. So they flew me all over, um, you know, to Islamabad, to Peshawar, to the tribal areas of Pakistan, to Phnom Penh, to Thailand, all over. Um, Initially training producers, but managing to find my way onto air, in you know any way that I could, um, until eventually I was reporting, Um, and filling in the gaps of places where we didn't have people but where we needed someone mm-hmm. so that was you know this is the 90s so kosovo was uh, erupting The you know the balkans were um at war northern ireland was trying to find its way toward peace and i was based in london by then so i was traveling to belfast regularly to file on that um and then ended up filling in some anchoring and hosting and yeah. kind of finding my way from there.
2: Did you kind of have it in your head that this was, this is the life of a foreign correspondent and this was something really appealing to you? Yeah.
1: I then, as now, have always found it amazing that a career exists where I can fly somewhere, interview people who would never talk to me, you know, who who aren't going to take my calls, Mary Louise Kelly's calls, but they'll take the BBC's calls because they want their story out there. You know how this works. Um... And the privilege of being able to go somewhere and see it and try to tell these stories and talk to people and then write about it and broadcast, and they're paying me to do this. I mean, it's the greatest job on earth. I love it. I loved it then. I've had so many moments around the world. You know I remember traveling years later, but it's been so many times along the way, but stepping out onto a balcony in Amman in Jordan and looking out. And just thinking, I can't believe I get to do this. Right. I love this. Right. I'm so
2: lucky. Yeah, yeah. I've had moments like that too. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the energy of the newsroom. And my when I first got into journalism, I would spent most of my time in high school and college doing theater and writing for theater and performing and directing. And it was the strangest thing to then step into a newsroom where I had, I mean, no familiarity. I had, I, I stumbled bass backwards into journalism. But there was a similar energy of people getting together. Highly focused on one project or a set of projects, there's a deadline. We either get it out the door or get it on the air or get it on stage or we don't. And then when we're done, we tear it all down and we start over again. And that kind of cyclical dynamic is something that I think is really appealing to yeah. journalists. The too. fresh Here's, slate it's every exactly,
1: day. Exactly. Like there are days when you know you just nailed it. Yeah. I mean, you just – it's everything came together. Every interview you wanted came back, yes. You came up with the perfect turn of phrase. It all comes together, and then there are other days where you know, like if I had one more hour, hell, if I had if I had five more minutes, I could make this so much better. But in broadcasting, you don't. Right, <laughs> like, right. Like your deadline is in seventeen seconds, That's it. and it's non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, and that can drive you crazy on days where it doesn't all come together. But on the other hand, it's done. You've done your best, and then you wake up and it's clean slate.
2: Was it hard for you to develop like the the the, the I guess it's a technique you sometimes hear when someone's doing an interview and you know it's wrapping up and you've got to kind of start signaling to the person. <laughs> <laughs> like you don't want to be rude, but it's technique like, is on. the
1: polite term, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and I need you to shut up now, yeah, Senator. Thank exactly, you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, you do. I have found it. Uh, it's incredibly helpful to signal on air. Mm. Like in the minute we have left, we yes. got 30 seconds left. I yeah. do that. It's On the one hand, you hate to waste five seconds to say that when you really have one minute left. On the other hand, it's telegraphing not only the person I'm interviewing, like I'm going to need you to wrap this up. But to everyone listening, because when I don't do that, the people who write in and are like, you couldn't have given Nancy Pelosi like 10 more seconds to finish your sentence. I'm like, I really couldn't. Yeah. It's to the second. Mm -hmm. And even if I'd given her 10 more seconds, you wouldn't have heard it because hundreds of stations across the country are cutting away to their local news traffic weather inserts. Um, So you're signaling, I got to land this plane, people. And then you start doing the "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's a great point to end it on. Thank you, Shane. Yeah, right,
2: yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine if you're in the studio with somebody, it's easier to. Um, you mentioned it, it working for the BBC in Atlanta during the Olympics. Were you there to cover the bo- – did you cover the bombing as I well? I did.
1: I did. It was uh, just – And there was the, the TWA crash It at the was same time, a nearly. lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember the bombing because I had, uh, you know, I live in Atlanta or I lived in Atlanta. My mm-hmm. family was there, um, but I was staying at the BBC Bureau, which was a house we'd rented um, so that everybody could share tape. Um, in those days, it was literally tape. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you would, like cut off and hand someone or dub your cassette theirs. Right. yours. Um, but I was working out of the Bureau. I had been working Around the clock, the way one does when you're covering a major event and filing for all the platforms and outlets and shows around the clock. And I remember, I can't remember what day of the week the bombing was, but I remember it was my day off. So I had uh-huh. gone home the night before, crawled into bed and thought, finally, I'm going to sleep eight hours. And then I remember my mom running into my bedroom and saying, they bombed the Olympics, they bombed the uh-huh. Olympics. And I thought, what? Okay, go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was so just, you know... Sad. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you, you cover it. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. yeah.
2: So how did you make the the leap then to uh, to National Public Radio? What was your entree into that? Because I, mean, I imagine that, too, must feel like a, a big moment when you're going to this other— Well, you'd been at the BBC, so you'd been at an institution before, but now you're going to, like, the American radio yeah. network.
1: It was my husband and I, the— the cute guy who arranged the BBC Scotland interview uh-huh. became my husband. Is that though. right? So there was a happy ending I to like that this. story in more than one way. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering. I was yes. going to let you get to it. And I was like, is that him? <laughs> what, what happened to the cute guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's British. He's Scottish. And we had been living in London. And because I married him, I had a work permit to work for the BBC. And it all came together. Um, but we were both, I think, ready to look around and move on. In my case, because sounding the way I do, with an American accent, I was hitting a glass ceiling at the BBC. It was becoming clear, like, I'm never going to get to anchor the evening news there, sounding like this. Um, And I think the BBC, as with NPR, as with many other broadcasters, have grown more open to different accents and voices and People bringing their unique selves and regional accents and all the rest, because my Southern accent was trained right out of me at the BBC. Oh, interesting! Um, yeah, it's
2: undetectable. I, mean,
1: I say y'all. I say Atlanta instead uh-huh. of Atlanta. Okay, now it's coming through. Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, as a quick aside, I remember that stories when I was in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, coming back, and I'd been to Angkor Wat the ancient temples yeah. of Angkor Wat. And I was temples. saying that yeah. ancient temples and I had a producer on the other side of the glass saying, did you, did you mean to say ancient temples? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, ancient temples. <laughs> had to do it like do ten, 10 times <laughs> before they would put it on air. Um, and there were many, I could, I could keep uh-huh. going for a while with the moments like that of, did you just say, hold on, uh-huh, back it up, uh-huh. back up the tape. Um, so with my ancient temples accent, I was not going to anchor the 6 o'clock news in uh, the U.K., and they. I got really annoyed with some of my reporting out of Northern Ireland and Belfast, where it aired, as was, and I as I had done it, on the World Service for international outlets, but for BBC domestic, 6 o'clock news, they were mm-hmm. voicing it over with someone who spoke the Queen's English, mm-hmm. and that's frustrating when it's your own reporting, and I thought that's that's – not gonna work for me for wow. the you know, foreseeable coming.
2: It's like you were like you were dubbed years. basically. Yes. Wow. I was
1: dubbed right out of it. Amazing. Um, so I started figuring out what else what that would look like and I interviewed at the BBC in Washington at the Bureau here, mm-hmm. thinking maybe that would be more acceptable. But at the same time NPR had a diplomatic correspondent job open based in Washington. Um, but covering the State Department, foreign affairs, foreign policy, traveling um, which I decided I desperately wanted, This mm-hmm. That is a great gig. I did not get this gig. Uh-huh. It had been promised to Michelle Kellerman, who to this day uh, is our diplomatic yeah. correspondent and was trying to find a way back. She'd been our Moscow bureau chief and was moving back to the States. Um, but they told me they wanted me, and they said, if you will come and edit our flagship biggest show, all things considered, um, if you can edit this, for two years, we'll give you we'll give you whatever beat you want. That was the basic Whoa. deal. And I thought about it and thought, okay, um, that's a pretty good offer. It's a pretty good offer. And yeah. my husband had a job he was excited about to come to here. He's a lawyer, and so I took it. And it was great in that I, you know, you edit a program like All Things Considered. I learned how NPR worked. I also just learned I had never covered national news in the states. Um, I didn't know how Washington worked. I didn't know how covering the country worked. You edit a big show like All Things Considered, and it's like this crash course in that level of journalism because I'd done foreign reporting, I'd done local reporting, but I'd never covered America. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did it for a couple of years, and those couple of years, I came in early 2001. Of course, everything changed on September 11th of 2001. changed, you know, what we were covering, the urgency of what we were covering, how we align beats. And it also, as I was thinking, okay, clearly what I'm going to ask for is, you know, another diplomatic correspondent job. I want to be covering foreign policy, which means I should be covering the State Department. But, uh, you know, in a story that may sound familiar to you, Shane, I... As I was watching, it just became more and more clear. I'm not sure all our foreign policy is being conducted through the State Department. There might be more interesting things to track going through covert channels, military channels. Um, and NPR didn't properly have a beat then covering the CIA, the yeah. NSA, the intel committees on the Hill. We were covering it through our White House and Pentagon and um, – State Department reporters, but not full on. And so I made a pitch, we should have an intelligence beat. Yep. I have no idea what I'm doing on this beat, and I have zero <laughs> sources. In fact, I don't even know the number for the press office at the Central Intelligence Agency. At least you knew there was one. Literally, I knew there was one, but I did not have the
2: phone number. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: But you figure it out. Yeah. So they let me launch it, and um, I figured it out. I was, mean, I'm figuring it out. I should say this for me. I don't know that anybody's properly Oh, I don't it think it anyone ever
2: completely figures yeah. it out. And, and, and this is something that, you know, when I tell this story about how I got into Intel reporting, it's very similar to yours in that people often, they think that because those agencies are so thoroughly covered and, you know, portrayed in popular culture that, oh, this must be ages going back of people just tracking the CIA and covering it. But it wasn't really a beat because it wasn't something that, Kind of was in the conversation and uh, it very much liked to stay out of it. And you're absolutely there was right. was no Rolodex no, to inherit. No, not at all. Yeah. And maybe just a few people. When I got into it, it was all formers who were basically my trail guides explaining literal mechanics of just, okay, there's X number of agencies, and this is the one that kind of, you know, that, that back then the director of Central Intelligence, as the CIA director was known, kind of tries to harness them all together, but it doesn't really work. And so you kind of have to, I had to get informed on this decades of history of these organizations, um, you know, which had their own reputations and own kind of mysteries and whatever, to suddenly start reporting on that yeah. is, you know, on a somewhat daily basis, is pretty intimidating.
1: It's pretty intimidating. And then add to that, for me, the challenge of broadcast, because as you, it's one thing just to get somebody's phone number and then to get them to take your call and then to maybe help you in any tiny crumb of information, but to get them to put it on tape Is next level. So I did a lot. Yes, you know, the formers, the people who used to work there and are now somewhat more free to speak. The people who've gone to think tanks. um, You know, I'd hear some little crumb and then I'd go to them and say, I don't What what does this mean? (laughs) What questions should I be asking? What questions do you have? Would you put those on tape? Um, It's hard. And
2: did you, would you, when you had to conceive of stories, I mean, you were doing it not just what's a good intel story, but what's going to work on the radio. Yeah. So how does that influence the decision of what you choose to, to report on?
1: Um, you know, I did more what we in NPR Lingo would call two ways than pieces. Mm-hmm. So a piece where, you know, it's me narrating this fabulous story that I have uncovered, uh, and you will hear from three people on tape through it. I just didn't have <laughs> three people on yeah, tape most right. days. So it was a lot of, you know, the, the anchor interviewing me as the then reporter Um, and every day just going back to that old thinking you know I've glimpsed this tiny thing which I'm sure is such a small piece of all these you know this much bigger thing that I don't know and may never glimpse but just going back every day to the what do you know how do you know it what do you know how do you know it And that felt like somewhat safe ground. And some days it really was not that much. And it was uh, it was a lot of you know here are the questions we have, Mm -hmm. here's what we're trying to find out. Here are the questions that I think the committees on the Hill with oversight responsibility are trying to figure out. Um, And those were all the days of you know obviously everything that came in the aftermath of 9/11 from war in Iraq. Abu uh, Ghraib, the 9/11 Commission and its investigations, which was a great opportunity. I'm not sure if you were on the beat by then, but it was this very rare moment where senior people who never spoke publicly, uh, you know, the head of the clandestine service yep. at CIA was coming and testifying on the record, on tape, yes, yeah, <laughs> in front of this committee, yeah, um, which gave me it was to me those 9/11 Commission <clears throat> hearings, which were day after day after day of live testimony were were my education mm-hmm. of, okay, this is how it works. This is what, this is who this person is and how they fit into an organization and how, you know, what questions they can take on um, from the White House, from the CIA, from the Pentagon as they tried to figure out what went wrong. But yeah, everything that happened after that from, you know, the uh, interrogation and detention programs and Guantanamo and and everything else. Yeah. It was an amazing time to be starting that beat. I wonder, so too. it was front and center every oh, day. Oh, every day. I mean, agenda. it was
2: – and people kind of forget this that agreed to which after 9-11 – I mean, A, the country was on a knife's edge for so long thinking there'd be another attack. But these were the agencies that everyone was looking to to protect us. Yeah. That said, OK, well, you missed this one on 9-11. What are you doing to get the next one? And I wonder whether those hearings – I mean, they certainly had a forcing effect in that you, they, you bring these people, as you point out, that never speak publicly. And now suddenly they're on live television. But I wonder – Well, did it have an effect, too, of making the agencies realize that if they did put those people out there, they could start to tell their stories and sort of start to shape a narrative as well? Yeah.
1: And I think that remains the struggle uh, for any of these agencies whose work, by definition, is almost entirely classified. Yeah. Um, How much do you put out there? You see, yeah. and you see the pendulum swinging. You know, with uh, a new CIA director will come in and be a bit more accessible and put a bit more out there and remind right. people a lot of what they're doing is open source material. Um, um, and then you'll see the next one come in and draw it all back. I mean, the most extreme example, I guess, being. Uh, the previous CIA director yeah. before this one, Gina, yeah, Gina Haspel, Haspel, who, to my knowledge, has never given an interview to a journalist, nope, ever, ever, and I've tried. Yeah, we've all tried. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've tried since she's left, and it's always no thanks.
1: Yeah, and now you have Bill Burns, who is a, a because partly of his background uh, as a State Department official, who was used to giving interviews, mm-hmm. he was more comfortable in that world, and I think you know he's also while well, he runs an agency that still you know, should be yeah. facing and answering a lot of questions about actions that they have taken in past and are taking today. Um, he wasn't at the agency for yeah, a lot of that, right. whereas Gina Haspel was. Right, right.
2: I think he gave you his first on the record interview, right? He did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Um, so you're, you're reporting on national security. You're learning the intel beat. At some point, you decide, hmm, maybe this would make a good novel. <laughs> Maybe there's a way to render this in fiction. <laughs> so, tell me about when the worm starts turning that you think you want to also be a novelist and and write about this world. And is it and had you always wanted to write a novel?
1: I mean, who hasn't always wanted yeah. to write a novel? I mean, most I think journalists. We all, most we all, yeah. journalists. Yeah. 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 You think I've got a story. Right. This would be fun. Right. I can. Do um, this. Yeah. Um. And. You do see crazy things on our beat, on the national security beat that are in your head or in your reporter's notebook that can't find their way into, you know, for me, a four-minute story that I'm filing on the news du jour, Mm -hmm. but you pack them away, you know, these moments. I mean, little ones. I remember sitting uh, in Pakistan at the headquarters of ISI, their intelligence service, and like four generals, four of their spy chiefs lined up. and I'm asking them this just you know years ago—but asking them about the hunt for Bin Laden and how serious they were, and um, questions that remain relevant today about Pakistani support for the Taliban across the border in Afghanistan, and. They're, you know, insisting uh, on their full and complete cooperation with the U.S. and their firm allegiance in the war on terror. And they're blowing – one of them kept blowing the most beautiful smoke rings that were floating <laughs> up to the ceiling, and then a peacock walked by the window outside. And I just thought, God, I should do something with this. Right? Like, what do you do with this? Right. So you write it in your notebook and figure maybe one day I'll come back to this. I think the other two things – you know, we talked about how f- – fantastic it is that every day you get a clean slate yep. in daily journalism the flip side is it can feel ephemeral you can do the most amazing story where it, you, the writing was great the reporting was great was so great but the next like you know by two weeks later everybody's on it you know so moved on, moved on.
2: and forgotten what you wrote
1: and i had been noodling the challenge of doing something that might feel a little more permanent um, That would last, you know, like a book that you could put on a table and it's going to sit there and your grandkids may never read it, but damn it, it's there. You wrote it. Um, And then there were just little moments. I remember standing in the shower and listening to the radio. It's morning edition, which at the time ran a series called Crime in the City. It was a great summer series trying to, you know, fill some of the dead air in the traditionally slow news cycle of summer. And they interviewed um, novelists, mostly thriller and mystery writers, um, who tended to set their books in a certain place, mm-hmm. and the reporter would walk around with them and you know, let, let the author show them, here's what, here's the cafe where this happened, here's the river where the body turned up, here's the this, here's the that. They were great summer series, and I remember standing in the shower getting ready for work, and an interview with a writer called um, Kara Black came on. She writes murder mysteries set in Paris. And she's describing her kind of her routine, which is she cranks out one every year or two. She does a three, four-month research trip to Paris, um, and then she comes back and writes, and then she does book tour, and she starts again. And I'm sitting there shampooing my hair Uh and call out to my husband, who's like brushing his teeth. I'm like... That sounds so great. Why, why aren't I writing murder mysteries that require months-long research trips to Paris and then going on book tour? That sounds fun. He was yeah. like, yeah, why not? And I was like, yeah. Yeah,
2: why like, not?
1: Why not? Mm-hmm. Why am I not doing that? Um, and I had two little kids. And cover. I was at the time uh, covering the Pentagon beat and traveling constantly. And I had this moment uh, in Baghdad, actually, where I just I hit the wall. Mm. Four-year-old at home who was sick, and thinking, "I love my job, but right now this is not working." Wow. And on the plane home from that, um, I started writing what became my first novel on the plane back to Andrews wow. Andrews Air Force Base, as it was then known.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax My data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: So your first novel, Anonymous Sources, it feels very much also like your kind of love letter to journalism. I mean, it's a it's a spy thriller, it's a murder mystery, it's also a book about journalism. Yeah. I mean, I, I if somebody didn't know what it was like to do investigative journalism or crime reporting, or frankly follow any story, if they read your book, they'd basically understand it. Yeah. Of how they follow the leads and if one thing to With some
1: modification. Sure. My protagonist kills one of her sources, which I have <laughs> happily not done yet. Um, but
2: so how did you, did you think, okay, I want, I mean, was Alexandra James already in your head? Or were you like, okay, let's start with something I know. Let's Let's make the narrative backbone a world I totally intimately understand. Because she, not unlike you is a complete like she like you were years before she's a novice of this she gets through a murder she gets pulled into this plot of intrigue involving the CIA and international terrorism and all that so she's kind of the perfect vehicle for this for even the the naive reader to 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 kind of be have all of this revealed to them right did you know that you wanted to approach it that way or did I, how did that come to you
1: I think it was <clears throat> This is all new to me. Yeah. I don't know how to write a novel. I don't know how to write fiction. I do know how a journalist goes about tackling a story that gets where they get thrown in off the deep end. And so this is something that I can see as a vehicle where I could pull the reader along with mm-hmm. me, figuring this out um, as she goes. And there were things about it that felt very familiar. Alexander and James are my two sons, and so I named my protagonist ah, okay. Alexander James because I was missing the newsroom as I wrote it and was as I walked away from NPR to do this and um, was trying to remind myself why. This is about your boys. This is about yeah. being home when they get home from preschool Right. Um, and doing something that I enjoy and find meaningful but that is significantly more family-friendly than flying in and out of Baghdad. And then it, it became a vehicle for telling a story where I could have her lead you through it and that felt the reader would be learning along with her. And I was also very much, because I did miss the newsroom, um, pulling on my reporting as I did this. I mean, I remember, you know, in the that novel came out in 2013 and in the years before then, if you interviewed anybody in the national security world and asked them like what keeps you up at night like either the nuclear threat or terrorism, yeah. uh, and the, the absolute worst nightmare was where those two came together. Right. And the place they would often point you to was Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, a place that at the time had the fastest growing nuclear program, weapons program in the world, and arguably, probably the world's fastest uh, um, recruitment of terrorists going on with al-Qaeda mm-hmm. having fled across the border and um, hiding you know, as we now know, where where they were hiding. Right. Um, and so it seemed like the convergence um, and seemed like, all right, this is something I could write about. If that's in real, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but in 2009, so early in the days of the Obama administration, there was a big scare about nuclear terrorism. CIA came and briefed, um, this was the Tariki Taliban, the Pakistani mm-hmm. Taliban, mm-hmm. Um, and they were getting credible intel threads that they had somehow had a line out to, or acquired, or had a good lead on some kind of nuclear material, and this was obviously terrifying. Um, So what are we going to do about it? And um, I had flown to Pakistan on numerous occasions by then and had interviewed the head of the strategic plans division, the SPD, um, who was like, it's foolproof, our security is foolproof, absolutely no problem, nobody could get a Pakistani nuclear weapon. But then around that time, wasn't it the the headquarters of the Pakistani army had come under siege and been penetrated? There were all kinds of problems, and you think, I don't know how foolproof this looks. Right. As a reporter, I can ask questions, um, and American officials, they you know, once you turned off the tape and they want you know, you were speaking not on the record, would tell you how truly terrifying this is. And I thought, all right, like, let's go big or go home in terms of what my protagonist is going to have thrown at her. <laughs> right. let's, like, it's pretty big. Let's have a back yeah. nuclear you know, yeah. possible weapon on the list. Yeah. We'll see what happens there. And she has,
2: I mean, biographical experiences I alluded to earlier, where I mean, she had studied at Cambridge, right? And there's a part where she goes back there, and it's kind of, it's you can tell that you're sort of dropping in these references to England and to London and to Washington that are really meaningful. Places I know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's like a reporter's instinct. It's draw on what you know, and you kind of weave that into a tapestry. Um, and she's a very, I mean, she's assertive character. I mean, she's, she's using her brain. She's using her looks. And you re- write really unflinchingly about her and, the struggles that she goes through and the traumas that she's going kind to of had in her past. I mean, was that – did you want to create this character where you're just pouring all of these things into Or did that just happen as you were writing it?
1: It happened as I was writing it. I mean, I I created her. Yeah. And there are definitely aspects to her that are totally me. Yeah. Um, there are definitely aspects that are really not. Uh, the first draft that I handed to my agent um, – By age, it totally didn't like her and also just didn't understand what was driving her Mm. and said, I need to be – I can be rooting against her. There are plenty of unlikable protagonists of novels that keep you hooked, but I have to care what happens to her. I don't care what happens to her yet because I don't know her. There's no backstory. so." I went away and spent months and months just thinking, yeah, like, what is her backstory? And most of it never finds its way into the novel, but I had to figure it out in my own mind to figure out, well, how would she react? Um, and it got to the point where I would hear her in my head just mm, all the time. Like, mm-hmm. I'd be at the dry cleaners trying to pick up my, you know, shirts, and I would hear out, like, how would Alex James handle this situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so I ended up writing a little bit more of a backstory than I had planned in terms of kind of how she was both uh, just total but just a yeah. total go-getter, like, yeah. you know, no holds barred, yeah. but Fearless, also very yeah. vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember having fun playing with, I'm sitting here talking to you, and very unattractive running sneakers because I have sprained my ankle. Um, but I do love high heels, and that is something that is that is me and Alex and the, James. She the shoes I was like, she that's Mary has some serious light. shoes. Yeah. She has great shoes. And I. that was partly because I like writing about fun shoes, and so she always had a good pair of heels on. Right. Um, but I love – I felt like I, if I wanted to figure out how she moved through the world, I kind of needed to know, like, what shoes is she wearing? And yeah. the thing about high heels, I will explain to you as a man, is <laughs> – they make your legs look so great. Like, you just, they're so empowering. You feel so confident when you walk into a room in a pair of killer stilettos, or at least I do. I'll yeah. speak for myself, um, in a way that you just can't replicate in your running shoes. However, they literally cripple you. You can't run after the bad guy or after the story <laughs> while wearing high heels. So they totally are a thing. They're about vanity yeah, um, and something beautiful. and you are vulnerable in them because you kind of can't move. And that combination of, like, the vanity, the vulnerability, but how empowering they are, like, that was all part of Alex James. And to me it was a lot of fun and really satisfying to try to just in little ways capture that.
2: I wonder, too, I mean, I think you wrote about her in a way that felt just very personal and very realized. I mean, I don't know that I as a man would have the same— I don't think I would understand maybe women enough to write— a character that fully um, because she is vain, but she's also practical and she's doubting, but she's hugely confident. And I mean, I liked that aspect of it. I liked that she very much leaned into her femininity uh, in the book.
1: Thank you. It's also, I mean, I did, as I say, there are many things about her that are not me, but that were aspects of friends or story. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I felt confident writing her as a woman, as a journalist. It's, um... It's more of a learning curve to figure out how do I write, you know, the man of color in a career I know nothing about, um, and make that sound authentic. Um, But you have to, unless you're going to only write about
2: people like you, (laughs) you know, people just
1: like you, and that gets boring for me pretty fast, and I'm sure for the reader as well. Um, And it gets to something, you know, I I try to do every day in my day job as an interviewer now is I'm interviewing all kinds of people every day, most of whom are coming from a very different place, with a very different experience, with very different views than I may have, but you're trying to figure out, well, what makes you tick? Why do you think that? Mm -hmm. What's your story? Mm -hmm. Like, let me—that's interesting to me. Um, And if I've done a good interview, you're capturing some common humanity, Um, and what makes— what's important to somebody else in their world, in their life, what they've seen, what they want. And um, and you bring some of that to fiction as well, trying to breathe life into characters who may be nothing like you, but imagining, well, what would their story be mm-hmm. to make them act that mm-hmm. way?
2: Had you read a lot of spy novels or thrillers <laughs> in the genre before you decided to, no. to do one? Okay, <laughs> okay.
1: This was another thing my fabulous agent pointed out was I sent her the first draft. This is before she was my agent because I had what I had written was so appalling. <laughs> so she she's was, like maybe she, I'll she maybe like, I'll, I'll represent. Definitely you. not taking this on. <laughs> she's like I can't tell you how to fix it, but among the questions she asked was, you know, have you read a lot in the genre? And I was like no, no. not really no. Yeah. And she was like, "Well, that's a problem if you're trying to write in the genre. Huh. You should maybe read some." And she again, before she had even signed on to be my agent she literally mailed me a box from New York and it had Agatha Christie and Lee Child you know the people writing today people who were writing long ago and she'd put a little post-it note on the front cover saying this is why I'm assigning you this like the Lee Child post-it note was something to the effect of you're not trying to write a book like Lee Child like you're writing a different kind of book but read it And you will tear through it because you can't help yourself because it's total page turner. And then go back and look at why. Mm -hmm. And he does, if you start just, once you've torn through it and figure out what happened, go back and look at the end of every chapter. He ends each chapter in a way that it is impossible to stop yourself from going on and at least starting the next chapter. Right. you ju- right. It's just total, the hooks are into you. And when you read like several of his books and really study it, you start to see how he does it, which is not to say it's easily done because right. if everybody could write like Lee Child, we would all be multi-gazillionaires right. and have written like Lee Child. Um, but for each book she gave, there was another one that was, um, you know, this person does character, like She will tell you three things about this character. You never find out what they look like or what they live, where they live or anything about it. But you feel like you know this person because she's chosen the perfect just three or four details to get this person in your head. Mm -hmm. And I read her book and thought about, okay, how does she do that? And I, you know, can't say that I've mastered any of this, but it was instructive to me to figure out, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. This is the way other people have done it. How could I do it?
2: It, well, it seems to me—I mean, that, that, that's fascinating, too, because I would have thought from reading anonymous sources that you'd read a lot of the genre, that you'd studied, like, literary and novelistic structure. Because the book—I mean, it, it reads like a novel is supposed to read, and it does Thank carry you, you through. Because um, <clears throat> so you either so. had instinct or you absorbed it. I don't know.
1: I think instinct, trial and error. Yeah. I do know how to tell a story. And this is, right. again, something you learn in broadcast. You know, as a reporter— In broadcast, I'm just trying to interview somebody and get the facts. And the interview can go for hours or can go for two minutes. I'm just trying to gather crumbs of information, which I will then shape into an arc, a story. As an anchor, my interview is going to stand alone. I have to give it an arc. I have to figure out where I'm starting it. I have to land it. There has to be some kind of closer, kicker. And you have to find your way through often a ton of information in the four minutes, eight minutes in between. Um, so you're thinking just constantly before you go into something, what's the arc? What's the arc? Where am I going with this? Where is this going? Who do I need to loop back to? Um, different writers do this different ways. You know, I've talked to novelists who have massive storyboards yeah. with post-it notes or you know, um, markers on their wall. And M- Richard Clark, the former White House counterterrorism sure. czar who has since turned his hand to writing novels, told me, Um, he keeps like cards on the floor with each character and realizes if, you know, it's been, it's been three chapters since, since the purple card Uh with character X made an appearance, got to get back to him, got to get, you know, got to, and that's how he keeps it straight. I'm not, I'm less of a visual person, but I have in my head constantly, where does this need to go next? Who do we need to hear from? Um, and then it's a constant trial and error. And I have learned, um... As I've done more, it's the value of getting an absolute shit first draft on the page, if you'll excuse my language. I spent a lot of time with anonymous sources trying to make it perfect or as perfect as I was capable of making it before I moved on to the next sentence, paragraph, chapter. And then it's really hard because you're so invested. At the end, when your editor comes back to you and says this whole section didn't work, throw it out. I'm like, but I sweated blood over that section. Um, more important, just get something down, and come back to it. And maybe this whole section is going to come out, and maybe this whole section that you thought was the end ends up being the beginning. I don't know, but I haven't made it. I haven't tied up all the neat ends yet, so I'm able to kind of rip it out and try it somewhere else or try getting rid of it altogether.
2: I think that's such <clears throat> important advice for writers. I mean, what the journalists too, but especially in fiction, where you just getting it down on the page is about 80 percent of the battle. Mm-hmm. The, the finesse can come later. It may be more obvious to you. But, you know, the way that you can agonize over something only to have an editor come in and kind of rip it up again. I mean, first-time writers who are listening to this should take this to mind, like, you know, do not over-invest in it because it's going to change. It's and it should to. change, right? Yeah. I mean, part of the writing of the first draft is you working it out and seeing what it looks like and what it sounds like before you can really start to think about what the whole story totally. is.
1: And some of it isn't even the structure of the story, what's going to happen, do you hear from this character, you know, uh, when you need to hear from them. Some of it is like... How much detail do you give? If I'm describing this setting today and I want people to be able to see it and imagine and feel invested in this little studio where you and I are sitting with gray walls, the gray carpet, stripes, and it's beautiful, clean, I don't know, what is that, pine table? Like, how much do you need to know that the table is pine? Is that bringing it to life for you? Right, right. Or is that a completely superfluous detail? And just tell me what happened next. Um, And you're constantly writing fiction, trying to figure out, I feel like in my, journalism work just because i have so much more experience at it i kind of i may not always get it right but i have a sense of what details you need to know to carry you along in the mm-hmm. story and keep your interest engaged in fiction i was like you know how like she's alex james is meeting somebody in this cafe how do how much do you need to know about the cafe do you just care that it's a cafe but i want you to picture it like yeah. how much do you need to know yeah, yeah. and so constantly i would like you know write this beautiful four-page description of the cafe and my editor would be like X, it's, just a cafe. <laughs> it's just a cafe and then the next one I'm like okay she's in a cafe it's like but bring me there what's the cafe I'm like but you know and you don't always agree with your editor right right and they're editors for a reason because they make it better if you will let them yes. but at the end of the day I also you know some days say uh-uh ah, I wrote it this way because I wrote it this way yeah it needs to say this. And you're the author. It's yours. It's your story to tell.
2: So when do you write? How do you divide your life between writing fiction and then hosting All Things Considered Mm -hmm. and doing the reporting abroad that you also do? I mean, you're off to Ukraine. You're still flying around the world and doing these big newsmaker interviews. Yeah.
1: Um, Which is one of the lovely things about anchoring at NPR is they really want the anchors to get out of the studio and into the world yeah, that is nice. um, and it then totally, obviously informs the interviews you're doing when you get back. Um, yeah, it's not easy and I also have two kids still at home. Um, but the writing of books is a labor of love and so like most things you love, you figure it out. Yeah. I My kids have um, been high schoolers this past year as I've been trying to write and the very last thing I usually feel like doing after a long day in the newsroom and getting dinner on the table and, you know, unloading the dishwasher, all the stuff is to sit down at 8 or 9 and write for two hours. Mm. I mean, it is really the, the last. I know that I love doing this, but actually getting myself to sit down in front of the screen and stop procrastinating and opening the mail and all the other things that are easier, it is hard. And I actually have learned a lot from my kids High schoolers who come home from a full day at school, and then if they're both varsity athletes, you know, a, a two or three hour workout, and they come home, and I think the last thing they feel like doing at nine at night is tackling a couple of hours of homework. But they're sitting there doing yep. it, and I would think, okay, if they can do this, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then if I just start, I remember, oh yeah, I love this, and I get into the zone then you're and in. keep going. And at midnight, I don't want to go to bed and turn it off. <laughs> um, I've tried that. I try. Um, getting up at five in the morning, Mm -hmm. trying to get in like 90 minutes Mm -hmm. before I need to start showering and reading in for the news day and all the rest. Um, And some days that works and some days it doesn't. Some days it's I'll get one good paragraph in and it's so brutal to give up that sleep and think I got one paragraph, but that's how you write a book. It's paragraph by paragraph and it's going to take as long as it's going to take. Um, and I also have gotten way less precious about you know when I started anonymous sources I was very I must be in my full writerly zone and have hours cleared to just immerse myself. Um, if you have another job and if you have family responsibilities, that's just never going to happen. Yeah, uh, we all have a life. Yeah. Um, so I've gotten I carry around I have with my with me in my bag right now a little red leather notebook and when i'm sitting in traffic when i'm in the grocery store checkout when i'm in carpool line to pick up a boy um, can i write a sentence can i at least think like where this is going next can i google the you know fact that i needed to look up before i can proceed and um, this is again an argument for why don't worry if the first draft isn't perfect. It's not going to be perfect if yeah. you're writing it in the grocery store checkout line. <laughs> there are going to be major bits that are incoherent, <laughs> but you're getting something on the page, mm-hmm. and it's easier to edit something than a blank page at five in the morning. I will tell you. Yep. I also divide up their I kind of their moments when I have the space to feel really creative. Often I'll go for a run, um, and that's when the, you know, oh, yeah. you work up a the sweat, your start blood, you know, yeah. starts mm-hmm. cooking, and your blood starts circulating, and the idea that eluded you as you stared at your laptop screen will come into your head. So there are times when I'm creative. There are times when I'm able to take the creative idea and write something incoherent and bad, but it's something. And then there are times when I'm able to go back, look at the incoherent bad page, and think, okay, this sucks, but I actually f- – I see that it's actually, you know, halfway down where the interesting things start. So delete what came before, start there. Where, where can I go with that? Um, and depending on kind of your energy level and your bandwidth, there are times of day that for me, I... I don't know why, but I kick into just great creative mm-hmm. mode, like mm-hmm. late afternoon. I don't know yeah. if it's my brain is conditioned I'm for the all too. things considered yep. schedule, mm-hmm. like four or five o'clock, let's go. Yep. Yep. Five in the morning, I have no creative ideas, just none. It doesn't matter how much coffee I drink, I have no ideas, but I can fact check the thing I right. wrote before. You can sit down and do can, some work. I can yeah. take the bad paragraph and copy edit it. I can, you know, I can do that. And that's something because that's an hour and a half of work.
2: You're reminding me of I heard an interview once with our mutual colleague who, like you, was also a novelist and a journalist, David Ignatius. Sure. And he described a very similar process of somebody say like, when do you write? And the answer was more or less, well, when I can. I mean, if you have a free 15 minutes, you know, that's real work. And I think the, the, the trick is, and it sounds like you figured this out, is— Once you just start doing it, and then the brain kicks into that mode, and then you're in it, right? But you just kind of have to start it up, and then you can go, and it's amazing what you can get
1: done. Well, I also called David Ignatius for advice Mm. Uh, when I when I embarked on all this, and I asked him that very question, like, when do you write? And I remember he said, "Well, it's on the weekends. This is I don't play golf, like I don't, you know, this is what I do on the weekends." And I just remember laughing and saying, "Well." kids are obviously older than mine because my weekends are way crazier yeah. than my work week. Yeah. I'm so relieved when Monday morning comes around and I get to rest on my day job, which yeah. is what it feels like comparatively to right. having what at the time were very little kids racing from birthday party to soccer thing to, you know, whatever. Um, I thought, yeah, this is not going to get written on the weekends. Now they're older. I got some time on the weekends. Yeah. They don't wake up till noon. I got the whole Saturday morning yeah. to me and the dog sit there and crank out a chapter.
2: How many good hours of writing do you have in you in a day before just the tank is empty and you got to wait till the next day to recharge it?
1: I, I I know a lot of fiction writers say they can really do whatever it is, four or five hours a day, and that's it's so intense that that's, uh, you know, what what they can do, and after that, it's just not productive. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've been conditioned by just so many years of being on deadline and often sleep-deprived on a big story, but I can write. If I I have that time, I will grab it. And with every one of my books, this is now the third that will be coming out next year, I have um, carved out a few weeks off my day job and uh, tried to take time to go away somewhere just by myself for a week or two and write, like, 18 hours a day.
0: Oh, my God. And I'm
1: sure I'm not actually writing 18 hours a day, but I'm I'm writing from before dawn till— Wow.
2: That's uh, intense. Like,
1: well That's into intense. the night. Because it's—for this last book in particular, where I was—I've never tried to write a book while anchoring full-time. Um, it's a lot. And I just couldn't find my way to you can as I say, you do it paragraph by paragraph, but this was going to take, like— decades at the rate that I was cranking out those paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And I needed to get some momentum to get me over the hump. And so I took a six-week book leave um, and took one of those weeks and went away by myself and sat in a house by myself and talked to no one. (laughs) And got enough written that I could start saying, okay, this is is still a lot of work. I still have so much left to write. But I can do this. Like I've broken the back of this thing. I can get this done. But there's no way I could have done that, squeezed in around the margins. At a certain point, for me, I need that uninterrupted space, and it You know, six weeks is not long enough to write a book. Yeah. But it was enough to get some traction.
2: That's great. And so so now you have your third novel coming out.
1: Not a novel. This is um, more personal. This is nonfiction.
2: Oh, it's like a memoir? Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. Do you want to say anything about it or do you want to hold Um,
1: on? It's about... It's about motherhood and journalism and the balance and the juggle and how, for me, I have found that has gotten a little harder as my kids have gotten older Yeah. um, because the trade-offs seem more clear. When they were little, I missed a lot of stuff um, because I was traveling or working, but it always felt like there'll be more. Next year, I'll figure out how to get all this right. Next year, next year. And um, my oldest was a senior in high school this past year, and it dawned on me there are no more next years I got no more do-overs if I'm gonna show up I gotta show up so I timed that six-week book leave to varsity soccer season because both my sons play and um I wrote my butt off until three o'clock every day and then I hit save and drove up and made every single soccer game that's amazing as many as I possibly could yeah Um,
2: I'm sure they appreciated that
1: I hope so um (laughs) I know and this is the other thing it's of course it's for them. Of course it's about them. But it's that the trade-offs were becoming so crystal clear and undeniable yeah. to me. Yeah. I want this. Yeah. They may not even notice I'm up in the stands. They're focused on the game. But right. I know. And I it to be there and not miss it.
2: And do you like—it sounds like you've you figured out, like, life is a juggle. And it's a juggling act. And this, is, this is true for almost everyone. But do you like having this book writer part of you— and also Mary Louise Kelly, the broadcast journalist and host. I mean, do you like holding them both together, or does one feed the other, or is it— They it?
1: totally feed the other. I love them both. They bring out different sides of what I can do, what I want to do, what I'm interested in mm-hmm. trying to figure out and mm-hmm. try to learn. Um, I'm not great at trying to do them both at once. Somehow it gets done, but it's not pretty. Um, but, yeah, they— uh, the reporting definitely feeds the writing. Um, I couldn't write books unless I were doing my day job or had done my day job. That's really interesting. It's just so informs. I mean, what else am I going to write about? <laughs>
2: like, yeah. You know? No, this is, I, I, I feel this way, too. I mean, I've ever written two nonfiction books, and it's the same thing. It's like— but the day job is giving me all of this material to go do the book. And it almost feels like. And the skills like, to write it. Yes, and the exactly. Discipline. And yeah. we feel like you would almost. I mean, there's something. You know, we had Daniel Silva recently on the podcast. And he talked about leaving journalism and doing a novel full time. And he's just cranking one out, you know, every year. And it's expected and that kind of thing. Um but i think that you you know you lose when you lose that kind of access to the reporting which is so live and so current and visceral and immediate to me it's hard to imagine how you'd shut that off and still continue i, guess, I mean i you, you, you people obviously can't do it but um i just think it's such a luxury to have that information stream to pull from
1: yeah i also want to say though i mean i'm not superwoman by but- any stress. Just ask my teenagers. They will keep you going for the next hour on the many fronts in which I am not superwoman. Um, And, you know, it's the cliche, you can have it all, but maybe not all at once. But like a lot of cliches, there's a big old grain of truth in there. Um, And I have cycled on and off that kind of high power on-ramp in journalism numerous times in the 18 years since my first was born. Um, I took long maternity leaves. I took a full year when my second needed speech therapy, and I thought, I, don't, I can't outsource this to the nanny. Like, he needs his mom. And then I quit altogether to focus on writing fiction um, during years where it felt like they needed me around. And then I missed the newsroom, and I cycled back in. But I have, you know, I, I don't pick your metaphor, the on-ramp, the off-ramp, the juggle. Um... It's okay to take time away Mm. and then come back, particularly Mm -hmm. when you're juggling small kids, because um, the title of my book is It Goes So Fast, because it goes so fast, and it feels, as I say, like you're going to be trying to make all this work forever, but then they grow up. (laughs) They get taller than you, and my oldest is leaving for college uh, in a few weeks, and um, it's okay to in that moment too keep the doors open so that you can walk back into them when you're ready because you'll be ready um, at some point to come back in and be full on but yeah. it's um, it's okay to enjoy those moments it's a go. healthy
2: lesson for people that you can toggle back and forth you know and, 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 and when you have a career that you enjoy, that you're good at, that welcomes you back, that's okay with that. I mean, that's—I that's, that's, that's uh, I think some people feel—I certainly feel like this, that, no, you have to stay on the track and keep running faster and faster and faster and higher and higher and higher and just add more tracks. But, you know, we're not super people.
1: And the news is always there.
2: It's always there. It
1: always feels, as you know, like you've booked your, you know, long-anticipated vacation and— I mean, I'd like the number, like the Mueller report drops or, you know, a Supreme Court justice dies right. or there's, all, there's, something, there's something where you think, oh, I can't possibly miss this. But the news is always there. Yep. It will, there will always be news. There will always be a big story and you can step away from it yeah. for a little while. As I say, keep the doors open, but go do something else yeah. and then come back if yeah. you need to, if yeah. you want to. And I, I have and have done.
2: Great. Well, in the few minutes we have left, see what I did there? Mm-hmm. That's good. You signaled. Uh, signaled. Uh, He's going to cut
1: me off. It's yeah. coming.
2: Um, so our, our tradition on chatter is the very last question of the interview is I reach into the chatter box, <laughs> which is sitting right here before <laughs> yeah, us. Here right now. If I can actually get this thing open. And I reach and I select a previously written question at okay. random. This is me shuffling through. So you're like a Foley artist now. This is
1: very impressive. Okay. It's coming out of the magic box.
2: Oh, now this is a good one for you. In what country other than your own would you most like to live and why?
1: Hmm. With all the caveats of am I working, like in the newsroom, am I not working? Yeah. But I'll go with, uh, I don't know, Life in 20 Years when I'm not yeah. tethered to a studio. Sure. And I'm writing the next great American novel while, um, you know, looking out at the fabulous sunset. Yeah. Um, I'm struggling between Italy and Paris. Italy, uh, mm. my family has moved there back and forth twice with the boys. Um, because my husband and I visited Florence years ago and said, why do they get to live here and we don't? Like, it's the weather's fabulous. The food is fabulous. Yeah. The wine is fabulous. Yeah. People wear fabulous clothes. The soccer is fabulous. This mattered to my husband. The art uh-huh. is fabulous. Like, how come we have to go home and other people get to live here? So when I... Took sabbaticals and stepped away from daily journalism. Um, I picked up the family and we moved to Italy and my husband commuted to London and wow. um, we threw the boys into international school and I very much look forward to doing that again wow. someday. Wow. But then there's Paris because mm-hmm. who doesn't want to live in Paris? Mm-hmm. And I speak French and I think that was one of those paths not taken. It's like that it was a part of me, you know many years ago that thought, of course, I'm going to live up in Paris and be a foreign correspondent based there and travel the world and have a cute French husband instead of a cute Scottish husband. (laughs) And my kids would be speaking French and that's the life. And um, I guess, I guess that has gone now. But um, that seed of thinking, you know, the waking up in your little garret, throwing open the doors and walking down and getting your baguette and your Truly excellent coffee With yeah. apologies to Italy I'm going to go with That French coffee is better just Start a small war there um, I'm a fan of the French press Yeah um, Yeah yeah, yeah. be one of those two. Yeah, well, maybe in you know twenty years. Plus, what great settings for spy novels. Well, see, this is I also mean, what I'm thinking. I mean, you, is, you just yeah.
2: said a great one that takes place has some elements in London, which I thought maybe you might say London because it's clear you seem to have a lot of affection for London, or maybe Alice.
1: I does. do, I do. But see, but I could commute Paris. easily to London from oh, either yeah. of these. So yeah. just hop on the train, you know, yeah. very easy. Yeah,
2: that's great. Um, mm-hmm. Well, for now, we're very glad you're here. We're very glad you were here with us, Mary Louise Kelly, Shane uh, Harris. Wonderful Been a writer. Wonderful, pleasure. Thank wonderful you. Wonderful friend, wonderful broadcaster. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.